This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at People, are you struggling for the perfect vacation house? Well, struggle no longer because now there is Verbo. Verbo is going to blow your mind. It finds you your perfect vacation house. Is your perfect vacation house my perfect vacation house? No, it doesn't have to be, okay? You tell them what you want, and they match you with the perfect place. Uh, you want a place with a hot tub. You want a place with a grill. You want a place that's kid-friendly. They've got it all. They do the matching for you every single time. So search VRBO in the App Store today and download the Verbo app and put a stop to frustrating vacation searches. Let Verbo find a home that matches you. You know, Paul, there is a new podcast out that is about something I have been fascinated about forever and I am so excited. It is called Running From Cops. You remember oh, yes, the show Cops? Yes. You remember the show Cops? This show does what I've always been curious about. You know, Cops was the TV show that would film the worst days of people's lives. Yes. That's how they build themselves. And the cops who sort of chase after them, tackle them, yell at them, scream at them. It was on forever. It is still on forever. And in these decades now that it's been on TV, I've always been curious how much this cop show in our daily lives has affected people. How, how it affects how we think about cops. How it affects yeah. how cops think of them, themselves. Like, what has cops done to our national psyche? Well, Running From Cops is the show that explains what cops has done to the American brain. Wait a second. Tell me. Wait. What, what do they do? <laughs> well, what host Dan Taberski is out to try to understand is, has this intimate, rough look into the criminal justice system shaped the criminal justice system? And that is the question he's after. Has it shaped the way you think of the police? And has it shaped the way you think of criminals? But even more importantly, he tracks down the people that were arrested on the show, Amy. Like, he literally goes, finds them, and goes, what was your side of the story? And think about that. You know, Cops was huge before the internet. People, if they were on Cops and you knew them, this is a public humiliation. So we get to kind of hear the other side of the story. This is the perfect show. You can listen and subscribe to Running From Cops right now in your podcast app. It's 1974. And Los Angeles is thirsty for water and blood. The movie? Chinatown.
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where every single week we look at the AFI's top 100 films of all time, the 2007 edition, and find out if they really are as good as people say and how they have influenced the filmmakers of today. Amy, last week we saw The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And our listeners voted overwhelmingly to keep this movie on the AFI list. Surprise, surprise. Huzzah, huzzah. That makes me incredibly happy. This movie was such a fun watch. It was so fun, and I feel like we got a bunch of really interesting comments. Um, you know what? I wanted to start off with one that I saw here from uh, Michael Arrowwood, who said that the uh, prospector from Toy Story, I believe... Two uh, was based so clearly on Walter Houston's character from this film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And now that I've seen it, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're almost identical characters. I love it. I love it when you really get to put something in context because you finally see the origin story. Yes. Like, that had never occurred to me before either, which makes me think Disney to Disney-ish. Do you think all oh, that the gold dust that sweeps to the end of this movie is Thanosian? <laughs> Keeping it endgame uh, specific. I like that. Never expect a superhero reference from you, Amy. I like that a lot. <laughs> you think that that's you think that that's like old ashes of like Black Panther or like Spider Man just going by? Um, hey, Amy, I wanted to bring up another comment that someone brought up. Uh, this is from Uncle Dirtnap. Um, they were upset that Leonard Malton wouldn't include the Big Sleep. In his top three best Bogart films, do you where do you fall in the big sleep? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I just got back from a week in San Francisco. We were just noiring out left yeah. and right. Like we went to the bar where the Maltese fel like the Maltese Falcon bar where he's like, Oh, I've had a sandwich in the middle of the night. Oh yeah. Went there, had a martini. I mean, there's there's maybe there's too much Bogart in the world, but I would like to see somebody look Leonard Malton face to face and say, You got this wrong. Malton. Yeah, you gotta challenge Malton. Hey, Malton. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, this week we're talking about Chinatown, and we asked people to call in and say, you know, forget it, Jake. It's blank. And I know that you and I have been on a text chain, and we've sent a couple of funny uh, towns to us. We've seen uh, <laughs> forget it, Jake. It's uh, what was it? I sent you a picture of Linoleum City. And when I was in San Francisco, I sent you a place, a picture of a sign that said Chinatown Kites. <laughs> <laughs> forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown Kites. So now let's hear your version of this unforgettable line. Forget it, guy. It's Flavortown. Forget it, Jake. It's Kokomo. Forget it, Jake. It's Sesame Street. Forget it, Jake. It's Trader Joe's parking lot. Forget it, Jake. It's Flavortown. Forget about it, Jake. It's Dollywood. Forget it, Eddie. It's Toontown. Keep it weird, Jake. It's Austin. Forget it, Jake. It's Flavortown. Forget it, Jake. It's Branson, Missouri. Forget it, Jake. It's Petticoat Junction. Forget it, Jake. It's Kankakee. Forget it, Guy Fieri. It's Flavortown. Forget it, Jake. It's the premise of the film Memento. Forget it, Jake. It's the Spider-Verse. Forget it, Jake. It's Chipotle. Guacamole costs extra. <laughs> I mean, I need to save the Flavortown because... I don't know if you know this. My best friend is on a quest to eat at every single Guy Fieri restaurant. She's oh my taken God. me to is a she few. Dead? 
Uh, she's trying to be. She's trying to be. Hi, Eva. I love you, sweetie. Eva uh, <laughs> is doing that? Oh, my God. All right. Yeah, and there's apparently one that's on a cruise ship, so it's like the floating island in Super Mario 3. <laughs> so I would say, Eva, forget about it. It is just Flavortown. I mean, Flavortown, Guy Fieri, literally dozens of people using the Flavortown. I mean, to a shocking degree, Guy Fieri, his reach knows no bounds. Yeah, I would watch this movie. I would watch a movie with Guy Fieri (laughs) as like a noir griller skulking oh, through the streets of Chinatown grilling things. Uh, by the way, I mean, why not? I mean, I'm I'm in National Geographic's getting into movies now. Why not have the Food Network start to do their own, uh, you know, feature films? Like, let's get Ryan Murphy up in here doing a Chinatown with Guy Fieri. Please make that poster. Someone that's listens to the show. Um, also, speaking of great people who listen to the show, I want to thank Kate Littleton and all the people on our Facebook group for uh, helping us get together some information. We wanted to update our website a little bit and include all the films that we have mentioned that we wanted on the list but aren't currently on the list. And now we have an updated list because of you. You went back and listened to all the episodes. You also helped us determine all the films that we thought should be on the list and the films that we didn't think should be on those. So when we can put together a really comprehensive uh, 50th recap show. So thank you to everybody on our Facebook group for doing that. We appreciate you so, so much. And thank you, Kate, for kind of uh, keeping track of everything. We really appreciate it. We really do. And also send some mental vibes to Kate this week. She's moving from Germany to the States. Oh, very exciting. Um, and happy birthday to someone who's in our movie this week. That's right. Jack Nicholson turns 82 this week. He is a star of Chinatown. And Amy, what do you say? You want to get into it? Yeah, you know what's fascinating is that means Jack Nicholson was born in 1937, which means he was born the year of this movie. Oh, wow. I love it. All right. Let's save that fact and more for right now. So, Paul, it's Chinatown week. Uh, I think I'm speaking for me and probably you when I say I've been nervous about this, honestly. Yes. This is an episode where we can't help but really get into a big conversation about art and the artist and separating right. the two and when to canonize somebody on a list and when not to and and a lot of it. I mean, so maybe we should just start by saying that we're going to be like hashing this out in plain sight, figuring it out ourselves as yeah. we talk. And maybe we should start, 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 start by just kind of talking about the facts as anybody knows them, which seem pretty clear cut. Five women to date have accused Roman Polanski of underage sexual assault and rape. Uh, Most famously, Polanski pleaded guilty to statutorily raping a 13-year-old girl, uh, Samantha Germer, in 1979, but then fled the country before he was sentenced. Now, the story of the trial is kind of complex. extradition requests and potentially corrupt judges and a discretionary plea bargain and a secret off the record meetings. But the whole thing is built around one very simple, generally uncontested fact that in 1977, Roman Polanski fed a 13 year old girl champagne and quaaludes and then raped and sodomized her. Roman Polanski lives freely in France right now. He's 84 years old. He continues to make movies and win awards with no real consequence to these actions and really no uh, kind of closing to this case. Yeah. And, you know, I want to say, like, I feel like the most important voice in this is the victim herself. And if people are really interested in kind of getting more into this case, she's written a terrific book about it. It's called The Girl, A Life in the Shadow of Roman Polanski and what it is like to be 13 and suddenly have your life changed forever. Like she has forever been called this victim. And that's a word that I think she has a lot of issues with. Um, 
It's a really great book. She wrote it a few years ago. And I think more than anything I could say about it, I just want to say some things that she has said. You know, this is this is in her words. I am more than sex victim girl, a tag the media pinned on me. I offer my story now without rage, but with purpose to share a tale that in, a de- in, that in its detail will reclaim my identity. I am not a stick figure. I know what it is like to be a, vi- a woman and a victim in the realest possible way. And she says, you know, how she's with over here, she'd never told anybody about it, honestly, in that it seemed that the whole world has been telling her her whole life she was either his little slut or his pathetic victim. She wants to be neither. She doesn't want to have to pick between these two identities. And somebody did ask her, like, how she feels about his art now. You know, she wrote actually an editorial in the L.A. Times when he was nominated for an Oscar 15 years ago. And, you know, the gist of it is, like, she thought it was okay and she wants him to be able to come back to work in L.A. and that she feels like the judge robbed both him and her of closure and kept the case going on longer than it should. And from an interview, she said, Why would I have an opinion of what others think of Roman Polanski's work? Love it or hate it, it makes no difference in my life. If he never made another film, it wouldn't undo what happened. I don't want revenge or to see his career destroyed. How would that help me? I object every time I'm used to protest Roman. And here she says something I think is really interesting. She says, but victims don't matter, not 40 years ago and not now. It's easier to hate certain celebrities and boycott their work as punishment for real or false indiscretions that occurred years ago than it is to help someone now in your city, on your block, who really needs it. It's lazy if you ask me. And so she really takes to task just being used as a symbol for more than she's comfortable with or more than she wants to see herself or more than she's lived the life. Well, you know, it's interesting to hear her in her own words. And and I think that the thing I wrestle with in this particular instance is there is some fantastic work here and it's not of a singular voice. Like Roman Plansky is the director. He may have had a hand, depending on who you talk to, in the writing of it, but it was, you know, marvelously acted by Faye Dunaway and, and Jack Nicholson and and Robert Town. And, you know, you have all these other people involved. And if we take a film like this off the list, do we invalidate their work by just being associated with someone uh, that is you know, a criminal. And and I think that that's the thing I wrestle with. You know, Paul, what is so weird about this podcast is how it seems to parallel real life. And this week, Roman Polanski actually asked the Academy if he could be reinstated. I saw that. They said no. Yes. I appreciate that no. I do too. And I feel like it kind of speaks to what we're talking about here. It's sort of, uh, he is being penalized for his crimes. And it's, it's interesting that uh, that they held firm with that. I think that that was a really uh, a smart decision. It's also interesting he asked, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the whole, I'm surprised he cared, I suppose. Indeed. I mean, uh, a very complicated person. For that reason, it's, you know, a movie that I would like to discuss on the show. Uh, but I also understand if people are uncomfortable with it. And if you are, this is the chance for you to hit stop and enjoy another podcast. We are fine with that, uh, you know, but that's what I, that's how I think I feel about it. Yeah. I mean, I think I feel so murky about it and I think I would feel less murky if there were women on the AFI 100 list mm-hmm. and there aren't. So I think that complicates all of this for me. Yeah. I mean, I do feel that there is a big difference between hiring someone now, mm-hmm. you know, and celebrating their work now or doing things that put money in their pocket today, mm-hmm. you know, and looking at a work that was made before then that I think, honestly, in this case, 
seems to expose a lot of how he does think of women disposably. You know, it, it kind of feeds into his story in ways I think he wasn't even anticipating when he made it. And yeah, I mean, when you hear Faye Dunaway talk about the process of making this movie, which we'll get into, she basically had to create this character on her own. He wasn't really helping her or collaborative. Yeah. This is her work. Well, there's one famous story where she asks, what's my motivation to say this? He goes, your motivation is your salary. And just kind of walked away. And, you know, they had fights, screaming fights where he ripped her hair. And, you know, he even got into fights with Jack Nicholson where he, you know, threw a mop through Jack Nicholson's TV. It's a volatile director who, you know, has a very, I agree, murky, uh, criminal past. Yeah. And that paycheck thing is in a way, I think, a little of how he openly saw it. Like he he said, I think a few times that he did Chinatown for the money, mm. you know, and that. I don't want him to take away the people who did this for the passion, which would definitely be Robert Town, who was writing about his city, a city that he loved very personally. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I think we are going to talk about Chinatown today and uh, getting into it the way we normally do. The year is 1974. President Richard Nixon resigns after the Watergate scandal. The top song is The Way We Were by Barbara Streisand. The game Connect Four arrives on the scene. Every goalie in the NHL finally wears a face mask. The post-it note is invented, as is liposuction. The national speed limit is lowered to 55, and inflation spirals out of control around the world, reaching 11.3% in the U.S., and the global recession deepens. The top movies included Blazing Saddles, The Towering Inferno, and, of course, today's film, Chinatown, which is rated number 21 on the 2007 list, down two points from its 1997 rating of 19. Amy, tell us uh, who's in it and what's it about. Chinatown. It stars Jack Nicholson as J.J. Jake Giddies. He is a private investigator. He most, mostly focuses in affairs, cheating scandals, uh, one day, he is uh, told to investigate the husband of a Miss Mulray by the Mrs. Mulray herself. He does. He exposes the man who is a powerful man in the water department as a cheater, he believes. And then he realizes he's been set up. That wasn't the real wife. The husband is now really dead. What is going on in the city of Los Angeles? A story that eventually takes him to Chinatown. But you've got Faye Dunaway as the real Mrs. Mulray. You've got John Huston, a director we have been talking about a lot yes. here, playing Noah Cross. You have a bunch of people. You've got Diane Ladd playing Ida Sessions, the fake Mrs. Mulray. Uh, Roman Polanski himself as Man with Knife, who in the most maybe iconic violent scene in here cuts Jack Nicholson's nose. Uh, and you've got Burt Young, who uh, we saw in Rocky. Yes. Uh, here as Curly, one of the sad sack husbands who uh, is a jerk as well. Yes. And he is great. The movie kind of opens up on him. But before we even get into the film, would you consider this a noir? Is this a noir picture? We've talked about this a little bit in the past. Or is this a neo-noir? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a lot more sunlit than some of the noirs we've seen. Yeah. It's not so much being like, here's some shadows for your baby. Yeah. I think in a way there's elements of a true horror film in this movie. You know, there's there's this like creeping, ominous presence. Like this watch of Chinatown, I was thinking about water, about the central importance about water, about how water is really in every scene in some sort of a creepy way. Even when you can't see it, it's making its presence mm. known. And I, and I like imagining that water is basically like the boogeyman of this film. You know, it's, it's there in the background in a water cooler when he first meets Faye Dunaway and realizes he's been set up. Right. It's there silently all the time. Like, can we even just listen to some clips of how water is all over this film? Yeah. 
Here's some water when Jack Nicholson goes to the corner and looks at a body. You don't even see it, but there it is, reminding you of its central importance. Yeah, he drowned too. Come again? Yeah, got drunk, passed out on the bottom of the riverbed. The L.A. River? Yeah, right under Hollenbeck Bridge. What's wrong with that? Well, it's dry as a bone, Morty. It's not completely dry. Well, he ain't gonna exactly drown in a damp riverbed, no matter how soused he is. We got water out of him. He drowned. You don't even see that water. You just hear it. Yeah. Here's some water when Jack Nicholson walks into the murder scene of the fake Mrs. Mulray, just dripping from a kitchen. You're not seeing water in any of these shots, by the way. It's all just added in after the fact. Yeah. And then here's my favorite water. I mean, there's a bunch of waters. I wanted to do just like an hour of water clips. This is water from when Jack Nicholson first goes to the Mulray's house. And they are, he, they, he realizes that they are washing the car without water in the absence of water. The idea that this is a man who's conserving water in his own home for reasons that maybe make him like more of a figure who's intelligent about the use of water, not the guy who would waste water. Here is all of that in just this strange little sound effect. You cannot escape water. Water, the having it, the leaking of it, the absence of it, it is everywhere in this film, and it is stalking you. And like you said, it's a killer, too. I mean, it is responsible for uh, the death that this whole plot kind of revolves around. Well, it seems like that idea of subtlety is something that was going on throughout the entire film. I would argue that one of the major points of subtlety in this film is, I think they are trying to capture this idea of like a 40s noir picture, you know, in the in the vein of the Maltese Falcon or the Big Sleep, but yet they don't use voiceover narration, something that we've talked about in the past. They did record it. They didn't use it. And I think in a weird way, it kind of modernizes what we know from a noir and makes it a little bit smarter. And I would go one step further that Jerry Goldsmith uh, composed the themes of the film, but he wasn't the original composer. The original composer uh, created a whole entire score, fully complete score. And then they decided to replace all of that. They gave Jerry Goldsmith two weeks to write a score for the film. And I want to play for you some of the original score, which I think might have been maybe a little too much. So this is from an album called Los Angeles 1937, because the original composer, Philip Lambro, was not allowed to ever release it as a uh, Chinatown soundtrack, but they were able to release this album. All right, so you hear that. I feel like that feels... I want to say broad. I mean, it's interesting. Like, it gets wacky. You know, yeah. it gets super wacky. It's very much discordant, cacophonous, unsettling, strange. I like it, but it draws a lot of attention to itself. Well, that's what I kind of felt like. It, it felt like it was like, this is a score. It felt like, not like Taxi Driver has that that score. We talked about that a lot where it makes you feel unsettled. This feels like it's trying to be noticed more. And it, like the Taxi Driver score, while unsettling, is kind of part of the rhythm of the film. And I'd argue that Jerry Goldsmith's score, uh, let's listen to his main titles, uh, is a little bit more naturalistic. 
See, I feel like here it just it feels more classic, more traditionally classic, like something that would actually pop up in a uh, 1940s film. Yeah, I think the trumpeter was told uh, that he was supposed to play the trumpet sexy, but not like it's good sex, <laughs> which I think works. I mean, that kind of silent streakiness it has, you know, it makes me think of the sound of just like watching a car drive by yeah. on a lonely street. It's it's unsettling, you know, and I think the score is really interesting because it's not there, honestly, for a lot of it. This is a really naturalistic film. There's a lot of just like birds chirping and silence and no score. And when the score comes in, it's usually kind of dramatic. It's usually like, hello, here I am. Right. I am the score. Like, here's a moment that I actually really like from the score. When um, when Jack Nicholson drives to go meet John Huston for the first time in Catalina. And the music is like, hey, you should be really nervous about whatever's going to happen. You got that tension pounding tick tock, yeah. tick tock, tick tock. And then I love this little bit of like comedy with his name. Mr. Gibbs? It is. Oh, how do you do? You've got a nasty reputation, Mr. Gibbs. I like that. John Houston just keeps screwing up his name, which like was an accident. Like apparently John Houston just couldn't get it straight, but it's just the best character detail for a rich guy who A, doesn't have to care about getting people's names right, and B, is probably doing it just to screw with him. I know that was a mistake, but I also feel like it's true to John Houston's character. What I like about him calling him Mr. Gitz is there's something about, you know, he's a private investigator and he's getting some information. I don't know. There's a, you, you know, there's what, some. get her done? Are you get her done? Uh, getting name? her done. Yeah, no, I don't. I think there is something about it, but I also think he's not playing by their rules. He's not even really an actor, you know, but he's in here and he's, he's so good in this film. Um, he it's plays so, it. He's so good. Like, he plays it without a mustache twirling, but he's so evil. Yeah, I mean, it's really wonderful now that we've done African Queen and Treasure of Sierra Madre just to get to, like, stare at his face and be like, you could have been a tremendous actor this whole time if you had wanted to. And you watch him on screen here, and I feel like you see a lot of traces of the man who made Sierra Madre. You know, you have this guy who shows up wandering around dressed, you know, a little bit like he spent a lot of time south of the border. He's comfortable with Spanish. He's He's wearing a sash as his belt. You know, he is a man who I think really represents old California, old Los Angeles as a town that did have a lot of Spanish influence. And you see it in him. Like, he's not like some Yankee who's shown up into town. This is his state. And he acts like it. He dresses like it. Just the way that John Houston went to Mexico and came back with an adopted son. Yeah. And he arguably, I think, has one of the best lines in the entire film, which is, you know, when he has that final confrontation with Jack Nicholson, he says, you know, in the, you know, the right time and the right place, you know, you'd be amazed at what you're capable of doing. You That's know? a thing I believe very strongly, hence my whole thing about DNA testing. <laughs> I know you look, Amy, we know we're not going to pin the murder on you because you didn't submit your DNA, but you're now you're really creating a paper trail by doing this podcast <laughs> or an audio trail, I should say. Um, but I do believe that. And in that same scene, he gives a speech that I think sounds a lot like something Humphrey Bogart might have said in Treasure of Sierra Madre. This is when Jack Nicholson is like, you did all of this for some money. What do you need money for? How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. 
Now, where's the girl? I love it. And you can maybe argue the tension here in this scene is not only two great actors going head to head, but the father of Angelica Houston talking to a man who is dating his daughter. And and that kind of push-pull of trying to be respectful, but also kind of getting in his face. Their scenes together are so tension-filled, and I can only think that their real off-screen relationship added to that. Yeah, I mean, I think Angelica Houston was on set the day that Jack Nicholson and John Houston shot that scene where, and he's talking about Faye Dunaway here, he's like, are you sleeping with my daughter? I mean, can you imagine how awkward it is? You're sitting across from this lion. Jack Nicholson is now becoming a star. He's like becoming one really in this movie. He's becoming a leading man in this movie, like a a flat out leading man. There's something about this character and, and John Houston in general. He could throw down, like he could punch you. And you feel like, oh, John Houston could beat up Jack Nicholson. Yeah, There's I mean, no there's no doubt in my mind. Even in the scene where they're like facing off at the very end, it's shot in a way where you really clearly see that Houston is a lot bigger than Jack Nicholson. Yeah. He's massive. And the way that he portrays evil, I think, is fascinating because he's just confident. He's not aggressively voiced, you no. know? He just says what he wants over and over and over again, very gentlemanly, and he expects it to happen. And that's terrifying. And this movie kind of goes out of its way to not leave any loose ends, but it leaves you on this feeling of com- extremely unsatisfied in a way. Like, you know, like, oh, the the bad guys won. Uh, innocent woman is killed. They're going to make their money. You have this unsettling feeling as you leave the film, but no thread is left untied. It's It's all kind of beautifully wrapped up. I mean, that what you're describing right there is, I think, what makes this film modern. Mm-hmm. You know, if this film had been made in 1937 when it was set, they couldn't get away with the bad guy winning. You know, the production code was very clear. Evil must be punished. And it would have ended with, you know, at least a happy enough ending. Like, whoever did something bad gets dinged. But, Amy, I would argue that in 1974, the same thing happened. Because Robert Evans wanted a happy ending. And Roman Polanski didn't shoot it. They were going to get away. So there is this idea that like Polanski found this dark avenue and just really like wrote it out. Not the darkness of the cinematography, but the darkness of these characters. I mean, every character we meet, you know, whether it's like uh, the the corner who we heard or, you know, obviously uh, John Huston, even Burt Young's character is sloppy, dirty. Every person who lives in the sunny, bright city is dark. Yeah, I mean, you even see that in Jack Nicholson's costuming. Like, he starts this film in this beautiful, like, matching cream-colored suit, three pieces. He's wearing three-piece suits a lot in this film. He is a really put-together guy. And you watch him get more and more disheveled. The suits become darker and darker. I actually love the detail that, like, he's wearing this fancy three-piece suit when he gets knocked out by the water. And there's something about, like, if he had just been wearing, like, working man's outfits mm-hmm. you know if he was like a real gumshoe type if he was dressed more like Humphrey Bogart would have been dressed if he was in this part him getting wet doesn't matter as much as a fancy dressed man yeah getting wet it adds to like this kind of cringy disgustingness well what do you think about the choice you know visually to start off our hero in white and then make him go to black when he, yeah. he when literally his, ends the film walking into blackness but his character arc is he's going from someone who is just, you know, a good guy, not a great guy, but li- living a pretty easy life. He and Then he is kind of impassioned to 
you to find the truth, to bring justice. Like it's weird that it's uh, that as he goes more on that route, his palette becomes darker. Yeah, I mean, one of the choices that I really think is interesting here is actually like the Burt Young character, because him and discovering that his wife has been cheating on him is what opens the movie. Mm -hmm. And Jack Nicholson is super blasé about it, honestly. Mm -hmm. He's like, don't screw with my Venetian blinds, have a drink, move on. You know, he's very just jaded and used to it. And he doesn't have to see what happens next. But it's when he's running around needing help that he shows up at Burt Young's house at the very end of the film. And there's just the briefest glimpse of us seeing Burt Young's wife with a black eye. Yeah. And that's when he sees the consequences for the first time. We see the consequences for the first time. Like, this movie has a consequence to that, which I which I respect. Well, maybe as you're saying that, I'm realizing that when he first talks to the fake Mulray, he says to her, are you sure that you want to know the answer to this? You know, basically, let sleeping dogs lie. And that's how he stays so clean. He can be in these white suits because he is letting sleeping dogs lie. But once he starts to get dirty, he literally gets dirty with, you know, the the truth. I mean, it, it, he's getting his hands dirty. So we're seeing him literally transform uh, yeah. as someone who actually gives a shit. Um, I actually pulled a clip of that first, like, scene with the Mrs. Mulray, with the fake one, for a couple of reasons. Like, one, because I love how little he cares. You really hear the disaffection in his voice in that scene. Mm. And two, because, you know, if you're watching this video for the first time, this is our introduction to Miss Mulray. You don't know that she's a faker. But there's little giveaways and just like she doesn't sound exactly like how a rich woman would sound. She doesn't look exactly like how Faye Dunaway shows up. You know, they both wear black nets, but like fake Miss Mulray has feathers and diamonds and furs. She's overdoing it. And you hear that in the scene, too. Mrs. Mulray, how do you do? Mr. Giddis. Now, uh, what seems to be the problem? My husband, I believe, is seeing another woman. No, really? No, really? Right. Like, he does not care. No, and he... And there's this kind of, like, interesting comedy, I think, in when you first see Mr. Mulray after that, he's such a mousy little man with his glasses. You're like, that man is cheating on this woman, really? And it seems like sort of a joke. And then when you see Faye Dunaway and you're like, that man is cheating on that woman? Right. Then you know that something is weird and wrong. I think just from the casting of this tiny little mousy dude. He doesn't even research if that's the actual Miss Mulray. He takes her at her face value. And I think this movie yeah. has yeah, like all these kind of comedy beats because he is kind of a, a slacker detective in many ways. Yeah, because you would think if he went to the Mulray's house, he would be like, who's the blonde woman who lives here? Yeah. Like if he followed the wife at all, he'd be like, wait, why does she live in this like bungalow complex in Echo Park? Yeah, he's just, I think... Taking the paycheck. And, you know, there's a line in the film when, you know, Faye Dunaway says to him, you know, what did what did you do in Chinatown? And he said, as little as possible or something along those lines. And now he's coming to basically realize that his actions have consequences. And at first, it's a blow to his ego that he got fooled. And I think that that's what he's trying to prove at first. And then he actually starts to care. I mean, do you think that he really falls in love with Evelyn or do you think there's a real connection there or he just wants to protect her because of all the things that he's never done before? I don't think he really falls in love with Evelyn. I mean, there's a scene right after he and Faye Dunaway fall into bed, which by the way, I just kind of want to flag their like makeout scene while Mm -hmm. she's, you know, fixing the blood on his nose. Yeah. 
I just can't imagine a world where a girl's like, I'm going to make out with this dude with a bloody nose and like get blood all over my face because that is what would happen. Like, right. Th- and I wish that there was a congealed. shot. Of just, it was congealed blood. Dude, she was like putting like peroxide. On. It was ba- there's just that just wouldn't happen. I just can't. I do not believe that your first kiss, if you're like prim Miss right. Mrs. Mulray, would happen with a dude who's like bleeding everywhere. And if it did, I wish that there had been a shot where you get to see the blood all over her face. There's no blood <laughs> consequences for this. And that man is bleeding everywhere. Well, do you think maybe she's working a double indemnity angle on this? Like, you know, not seducing him, but making him care for her. See, that so, I would buy. Yes. You know, and, and but we don't really see that side of her. I mean, one of the things about this movie that's so interesting, like most noir is we're seeing it only from his perspective. He's not telling us the story, but we're only seeing it from his perspective. So, um, you know, in a weird way, we don't know what her real motivations are. You know, if she believes she can manipulate him into getting her out, because, I mean, that's what the end of the film is, uh, you know, and, and what I think the original intent of the ending was going to be was that he was going to get them out. Uh, and I, I would believe that. I would yeah. believe that because, like. She doesn't know. seem to need him. Except for that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they get along very well. You know, mm-hmm. you don't really feel, I think, a ton of chemistry between them. Um, and actually, even after that bedroom scene, when they're lying in bed, she's trying to get him to talk a little bit about his past. And he's not that interested in opening up to right. her. You know, so they don't really seem to connect, I think, that well. But I think she's putting on a decent show, probably to be taken care of. Because when you look at her character, she went from her dad to her dad's partner and then she was just under her dad's partner's protection. And now she needs somebody new to protect her because he's dead. And it also kind of reflects interestingly on on Mulray, who is a pivotal character in this film. And we view him as being what you said earlier, like he cares about the water supply and all this sort of stuff. But we also have this guy who is marrying his partner's daughter, who must be exponentially younger than him. Like, you know, there's something a little sleazy and weird about that too i mean it's never really brought up that that's a a weird thing but i think you have to acknowledge it's a little bizarre to marry your partner's daughter yeah i mean unless you already hate your partner and you're trying to protect her in a strange way i mean it is interesting that this is a film where you know it's probably town script is very clear about saying that what happens to her is rape very Mm -hmm. very 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 clear about it you know and I think there's something kind of unusual in the fact that Noah Cross, uh, the John Houston character, never comes out. Nobody actually says out loud that, like, he might have extra enjoyed murdering Mulray because he took his daughter. Right. But it's definitely there. You know, it's just you find out about their relationship so late that I don't think you get the second level of it so much. You're talking about water and money and water and money. And then you're like, oh, he just straight up also stole this thing that he thought he owned. And again, not to keep on harping on this, it's only from Jack Nicholson's perspective. So we don't get to see the film from anybody else's eyes. It's all the way he's looking at them. And and I think in his mind, he's not getting into that relationship. He He's more concerned about getting back on top after he was, you know, tricked and and getting to the bottom of this, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a defensive guy. Like, there's that scene early on when the pictures of Mr. Mulray are on the front cover and he's getting, you know, his 
shaving done. I'm always mm-hmm. so fascinated why men had other people shave them for the longest time. I've always wanted to do it. Uh, it seems to be a blast. And then I'm like, I never met the right beard growth where that would feel appropriate. <laughs> but here, listen to the way that he just keeps saying it's an honest living. And the way that he says it, I feel like he doesn't believe it. I think got in the newspaper. It was so quick I didn't even know it myself. Make an honest living. Of course you do. Huh? Well, anyway, this story, this guy who got tired of screwing his wife and he said to his friend, an honest oh, living, so you understand? Says, well, clearly he doesn't feel like it's an honest living. He used to be a cop. We hear how he feels about his entire job when the fake Miss Mulray is there. You know, he's not a good guy, not a bad guy. He's just a guy who doesn't want to be questioned at all. Yeah. Well, what I think is so interesting about what ties that scene together, the barbershop scene with the next one where we meet Mrs. Mulray. And this is one of the things I really like about just the script mm-hmm. is you have this barber trying to interrupt this fight by being like, let me tell you this horrible joke, you know, yeah. about about Chinese men. And um, in the very next scene, Jack Nicholson is just so excited to tell everybody this yes. joke. And it's this kind of like through line that takes you from one moment to the other. And he bursts in and he's like going to protect his secretary from having to hear this joke by sending her away. Right. And that comedy of just him bursting with this stupid joke as you see Faye Dunaway emerge from the background and just watch him make a fool of himself. I love that scene. It's such a classically comedic moment centered around such a problematic joke or, or not a problematic joke. I think it's in character for the character. And the joke is on him in a way. Yes. Telling such a stupid joke. But then the film views all the Asian characters through a lens that is incredibly stereotypical. I mean, this film was even at the time protested by the Asian Americans for fair media. Okay. They had a rally in front of a man's Chinese and they said, um, their, their spokesman said that we are appalled by the blatant racism of the movie's jokes, dismayed to see the same old stereotyped roles for Asian actors portrayed, and resentful of the implied comparison of our community with the perverted decadence of the rich white heroes in the film. Mm. And so I, I, I always think that's really interesting because I think sometimes we think that like only now with distance are we able to see what's problematic. And people were upset at the time. There are people holding signs that said that this movie is rated racist. Hey, Amy, let's take a break in the show to hear a few words from our sponsors. Our first sponsor, obviously our friends at Podswag, who sell our amazing merch. We have a awesome, awesome unspooled poster that you can uh, check off as you watch the movies on our top 100 list. It was designed by Scott Campbell, Scott C. He does these great little watercolors. And if you order the big bonus unspooled package, you can also get your own Zoe Decahedron. It's a really great, uh, fun poster that actually looks nice in your house. It's not too big, not too small. It's perfect size. Gorgeous colors. I love the whole thing. I love the whole thing. Podswag.com. We're still working on our shirt. We have to decide on that. (laughs) That's been hard. It's been very hard. Um, But who else is sponsoring the show? Well, I'll tell you, um, it's our good friends at Fracture. Now, Amy, I know you love Fracture. Okay. I love Fracture. All right, tell us a little bit about Fracture. All right, so what Fracture does, Fracture is the site, if you love the pictures that you've taken on your phone, on your Instagram, if you're like, I'm a real artist, this is a beautiful moment, I want to treasure this moment forever, you just upload your photos to Fracture, they send them back to you printed on glass, ready to hang, ready to put up on your bookcase, ready to do whatever you want. And they look kind of cool on glass too because they don't look like a regular photo. They have like a little bit of a, just an interesting different quality to them. They're legitimate. I love them. In fact, uh, my boyfriend just creeped out his cat sitter because his cat sitter took a really beautiful photo of his cat. 
I made a fracture print of that photo his cat sitter took. <laughs> so his cat sitter walked into his house, and there's a frame picture that the cat sitter took of his cat next to the cat. These are the things you can do with fracture because it's actually not that expensive to make a really, really rad personal gift. I love this. And the best part about the entire thing is that fracture prints are made in Gainesville, Florida, from materials sourced right here in the U.S., and they're a green company operating a carbon-neutral factory. So visit FractureMe.com slash Unspooled. That's FractureMe.com me.com slash unspooled for a special discount on your first fracture order. And don't forget to pick unspooled in the one question survey after the checkout. There's a lot of things for you to do, but it's helpful to us if you do all these things. That's fractureme.com slash unspooled and make sure you check unspooled in the one question survey after checkout. What's interesting about the history of LA is what a multicultural city it's always been, mm-hmm. you know? And like, that's one of the things I actually like about the casting of this movie is you see that this was always just such a, like a melting pot of different communities. I mean, Chinatown in L.A., you know, it existed in like the late 19th century. Like it's been here forever. You know, it's um, it's where like Union Station is today. Yeah. It's like where China, Chinatown yeah. used to be. And then they put Olvera Street there and then they made a new Chinatown. And then they actually made this other thing called China City. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, the woman who made Olvera Street, people who live in L.A. will know that Olvera Street is like kind of a imitation Mexican village yeah, right? in the center bizarre. of town. It's cute. It reminds me of, you know, being home in San Antonio. Yeah. Um, and the woman who built that also built this thing called China City, where she like took some of the props from The Good Earth, this movie that also came out in like legit 1937. And she put that building there and they had this like fake Chinatown. But then the real Chinatown was also being built around the same time, just like oh, a couple wow. blocks north. Chinatown wasn't even in the original script, like the lo- location of Chinatown. It was referenced, but um, that was something that uh, Polanski added in. He's like, you know, we need to, we should end the movie in Chinatown, um, which is so interesting to think because it's such a, a pivotal scene in the entire film. And it's the only scene where our three leads uh, are all on screen together. They're never together uh, except for that that one little moment. And what's so interesting is how they sort of resist saying Chinatown for a beat because you know they're there because Mrs. Mulray's chauffeur Khan mm-hmm. lives in Chinatown. He's told her to go like meet him at at Khan's house, and Khan just gives the address of where he lives. And there's that beat where Jack Nicholson won't say the word Chinatown when he realizes where it is, and he just won't do it. He won't say the word. Right. And I think that's so interesting, like structurally, because there's a lot in here about characters who won't come out and say what they mean, but are making it really obvious they won't say it. Right. You know, like all the times that Faye Dunaway stumbles over the word husband or like she's like, oh, my hu- yeah. husband. Or like even 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 this little joke right here that um, happens when Jack Nicholson is talking to Faye Dunaway. No question from you is innocent, Mr. Gitties. I guess you're right. To you, Mrs. Mulray. Frankly, tonight you saved my act. You saved my neck. I mean, in a way, it's a little bit overdone, but you know what? He's trying now. The guy who told right. the embarrassing, horrible, like, Chinaman joke yeah. is at least now watching his words. Let's talk about Faye Dunaway and this character. Originally, uh, it was going to be Ally McGraw, but she uh, divorced producer uh, Robert Evans. Kid Stays in the Picture, Robert Evans, classic, insane Robert Evans, uh, for Steve McQueen. And he's like, well, you won't be in that movie. And then uh, Robert Evans wanted Jane Fonda 
for the part. But Roman Polanski didn't want Jane Fonda. He wanted Faye Dunaway. And Faye Dunaway kind of coming off this weird run of films because she had uh, been amazing in Bonnie and Clyde. We talked about it on the show. Um, And then kind of does two movies after that that don't really connect. I think like The Three Musketeers is one of them and another film that just was not kind of paying off on the premise of how uh, amazing people thought she was going to be. But in this film, you know, you can see Jack Nicholson. You're like, oh, that's a Jack movie. I see him. He always feels a little bit like Jack Nicholson. This character feels so incredibly different from her portrayal in Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so interesting about this character is, like, you never know when she's lying. And she's, like, incredibly mask-like, honestly. You know, her face is done like a mask. Those perfect lips, the perfect eyebrows. I mean, I think Faye was saying that the only thing Roman Polanski really cared about was her makeup. Which was based on his own mother's look pre-World War II, which is interesting. Yeah, that's, whoa. I mean, putting that in the context of his mom dying in Auschwitz, that's... Okay. Yeah, he said uh, that that was like he was very specific about wanting that, uh, like that lipstick in the shape of a cupid's bow, and and in, she looks jarring in a way. I think those penciled on uh, eyebrows, it, like you said, it's a mask. Yeah, I mean, and she doesn't break the mask, and like you can't tell what the mask is for for so long. I mean, right? She's definitely lying about something. We don't really get it. She's got all these layers to to this performance, but they're hidden under this complete composure that she almost never breaks. You know, and what I think really knocks me out about it is, like, even not getting direction from Polanski, Mm -hmm. you know, about her character's motivation. But you could think, like, this is a part where she'd really like somebody to kind of say, like, here are some dimensions of this scene. Let's really talk about it. This is not the kind of part where you just want to be thrown into the deep end and have to figure it out by yourself, which she did. She did these little things in here that I find really smart. Like, I pulled a clip from the scene where she's just been in bed with Jack Nicholson. And he brings up her father. And you hear some nerves in her voice. You hear that something is up. But it's this physical thing she does where she's been comfortable being topless in bed with him. And suddenly you watch her just start to cover up her body. It's almost like this involuntary response to thinking of her dad and to protecting herself. It has to do with my father. I know. He he owns it. You know? I saw him. You saw him? My father? When? This morning. I mean, I love that. She's telling you just so much that is through her, through her body language. And to me, it's like amazing because apparently like the first words that Polanski said to her on set were, I hear you are difficult to work with, Mm. which she is from all the stories I've also heard. You know, that this is like a story where there are really no no true heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, everything I've ever heard about Faye Dunaway is she's tough. And yet, like, I can't help thinking of this parallel. You know, when, when the film ends, Polanski gives all these interviews talking about how hard she is to work with, how, like, she's really fragile, how, like, oh, she wanted me to tell her her motivation, like, making her out to sound like a basket case. I mean, he really did use words like certifiably insane and maniac and wow. giant pain in the ass to describe Faye Dunaway in this film. And when you think about it, that's basically what Noah Cross is saying about her character the whole time. Like, it's this kind of deliberate gaslighting, not just of her, but of everybody who knows her. Like, Noah Cross is telling Jack Nicholson, don't listen to her. She's crazy. And Polanski is doing the same thing to the actress herself. Do you think that that might have cost her an Oscar? You know, because when you start to spread that 
story around, you start to believe like, oh, well, Roman Polanski, you know, edited her the right way. It wasn't that she performed the right way. But this is the same person who, you know, was frustrated with that scene, the climactic scene in the film where she reveals that this woman is her sister and her daughter. And she didn't feel like the scene was working. She told Jack Nicholson, you have to slap me. And then Jack slapped her and, and she brought that there. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't afraid to go to those places. And I feel like if you have that story coming out and you have a lot of the story that she's difficult, it feels to me like she was just trying to find how to play this character and make this character three-dimensional from arguably a man, this director, who doesn't look at women in that way, in a three-dimensional way. Like she almost has the biggest uphill battle because he is not going, he doesn't even think about how to paint her. Yeah, I mean, what's really been interesting kind of seeing as a theme in so many of these movies we've talked about is like a director or a co-star not trusting that the really great actress he's in scenes with can do the role, mm. you know? Yeah, you're right. I mean... From dancing with uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Yeah, I mean, to Dustin Hoffman, like, pinching Catherine Ross's ass to make her mad at him. And she's like, you don't have to pinch me. Like, right. what are you doing? You know? Yeah. To the way that people talked about Sybil Shepard in the last picture show. It's like, it's strange to me the way that the great actresses we've seen in these films have been talked about as though, like... They're incidental or mm-hmm. it was a fight to get this performance out of them. When, you know, you break Jack Nicholson's TV and they're like, I hey, still a great guy. We loved working with Jack. And it's all to the same point, which is I want to be good. I need to find out these things. And, uh, and I mean, in her book, she has the most complicated character in the movie. And she plays it so well. It's so deftly performed because she's got to walk this line that's true throughout the whole movie. So when you rewatch it, there's nothing that plays false. She's hiding this. She's afraid of him finding it out. She, you see it in the scene when Jack is in her car, when he kind of surprises her after he sees Faye Dunaway with her uh, sister and daughter. You see that nervousness and you don't exactly know why, what's going on. Something is up, but you don't suspect it. And I think that that's all on Faye Dunaway's shoulders. And I think when you read any review of this movie now, any current review, any people talking about this film, they go to Faye Dunaway. I, I don't think that you hear Jack Nicholson's performance as lauded as Faye Dunaway's performance. And, you know, as we've gotten further and further away from it, I think you see just how amazing it is. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Like, that, this is a performance that has to hold up on, like, the second and third and fourth watch. Yeah. Where you're like, no, this is true. Because I think a lot of films kind of cheat there. And when you rewatch it again, you're like, oh, that twist ending does not hold up. Right. You know, it's a twist for twist sake, but not like a something that has actually been paid off and as part of the character motivation. Exactly. Where with her, like her breeziness when she's like, oh, drop the case. I don't care. We're fine. I'm in my right. purse. Makes perfect sense. You know, her her protection, you know, her driving force is that she doesn't want anyone to know about the worst thing that's happened in her life. Yeah. And it's all coming from that, you know, and it makes sense. And every single watch, you still see it there. I mean, the way that she described it was she says, you know. Often a performance is because of when it comes to the relationship between actress and her director. And often it is in spite of in mm. that she's not going to say in spite of Roman, but that right. he had a great rigidity and that his attitude of make her mad at me and she'll be mad at the movie that actually freezes her up. So as a director, he's not thinking about really what's best for her. Like he's not thinking about really what to get from the scene. Right. He's, he's going at her with his one direction of what he thinks will work. And when it doesn't work, he's not trying anything else. The whole reason why this film exists is because Robert Town didn't take the easy way out. Robert Town is this writer who's bouncing around town, doing punch up on a lot of stuff. This is his first produced uh, screenplay. He was 
offered $125,000 to write The Great Gatsby, but he felt he couldn't do better than F. Scott Fitzgerald. So he took $25,000, $100,000 pay cut to write his own story, this Chinatown story. And he wrote it with Jack Nicholson in mind because he had been roommates with Jack Nicholson. And he wrote it as a trilogy. And he wanted to do a trilogy in which the character aged with the right amount of time in between. You know, So uh, The Two Jakes was the sequel, which we'll talk about maybe a little bit later. But it was really about L.A. And it was this pure passion project for Robert Town. And I, and I think that that's why it attracted all these amazing people and why I think these characters feel familiar but are are wholly different. We've seen the noir detective a million times. Jack Nicholson's character is a different version of that. You know, um, same for Faye Dunaway. She's a different type of traditional uh, noir femme fatale because she's not a femme fatale the way that we're used to seeing her. You know, we're giving her a little bit more backstory. Yeah, I mean, what I think is interesting about what motivated Town to do this is one of the ways he would talk about it, it was that it seemed very smell-oriented. Mm. That he would look at old photographs of Los Angeles and he would remember what it smelled like. You know, he would oh, remember wow. the smell of the perfumes that people wore at the time or like the, what the trees smelled like. He was like, I remember the smell of, you know, fresh-painted houses. And that he was trying to capture this sense memory of what it was like growing up here, you know, before like all these buildings were demolished, which was something right. he was really worried about, you know, already by the time they made this, you know, like the Brown Derby had to be replaced by the Prince, a bar that actually still looks kind of like the movie here. It hasn't changed too much, thank God. Although now it serves Korean food, which is delicious. But that that kind of nose sense, you know, I think it's sort of lovely because this is a movie, you know, about a character who gets his nose cut, yeah. you know, and I do love the way that it happens where it's oh. not like slow and torturous. It's just no. so fast. It's like an attack that happens before you even get there. And does it hurt to him? Like only when I breathe is what he says. And I love that sequence because it's so intimidating. Roman Polanski, uh, of course, plays the the nose cutter in that scene. And that scene is so intense. But then immediately the tension is diffused by the next scene, which is purely comedic. When you see this bandage on his face, you know, you go from... I think we all feel that thing like, oh, my God, what would it be like? Because that's such a a personal cut. Like, you know, I think if you all think right now about someone cutting your nose like that, it's like, oh. Yeah, and it's so interesting that Polanski, I think, embraced his character being called a midget. Mm. You know, because I think he was very insecure about his height. Okay. There's this story that when he was working his way from being sort of like basically a street urchin Mm -hmm. who was just sort of taking care of himself during the Holocaust when, you know, both of his parents were taken to camps, when his sister was taken to a camp and he was sort of fending for himself. When he tried to become an actor in Europe, like he was one of 50 people who got approved to go to this next level drama class. And then they were going to do one more final cut from there and everybody got in but him. Oh, wow. And they told him to his face the reason he didn't get in is because he was so short they figured there weren't enough roles for him. <sighs> so what you're saying is they were heightus, Amy. Um, I think the world is heightus. And I think it leaves <laughs> somebody like Polanski feeling like they want to prove something. Well, I mean, then you have to answer the fact of all these short leading men. I mean, Tom Cruise is not the tallest of all men, but yet he's, he's a- not as short, I think, as people think. <laughs> he isn't. Um, <laughs> By the way, Paul, here is an interesting thing that Robert Town once said about his approach to writing screenplays, which is, and you will notice that he did this very well. He likes to write a screenplay where every location that you go to you yeah. return. So if you go to an office, at some point in the script, you return to that office. That he wants to lay out basically a geography of the film where you always know where you are so that you understand that everything is real. And you know who that reminded me of? Who? A little movie called Titanic. 
Oh, brother. <laughs> Get out of here. I thought there was something interesting. Did I misread this? Um, you know, he, uh, Roman Polanski says, you know, I'll feed your nose to my goldfish. Now, there's a goldfish in the pond in the back of Mulray's house, and that's where Mulray was killed. Do you believe that maybe he was helping uh, Noah Cross take that body out of there? Or was that like a little – you see a goldfish in that pond. Now, by the way, film gaff alert, you couldn't have a goldfish in a saltwater pond, but – I guess it wasn't technically a saltwater pond. It was, you know, this is uh, this is for greater minds to break down. But I didn't know if it was like a little bit of an allusion to, you know, I'll feed your nose to my goldfish, which was the way that Mulray was, you know, drowned in that same pond. I could see that. I mean, I can't imagine that Cross would just do it on his own. Well, I think his that, own hands dirty. I think Cross may have done it his own, but then said, all right. Get him out of here, yeah. you know, or, you know, or maybe, or maybe he just stood and watched. Who knows? There's a, there's an element to him that I feel like he would like his bare hands on, on Mulray's throat. Yeah. I mean, there are like these kind of interesting callbacks that aren't even callbacks that I mm-hmm. sort of enjoy, you know, earlier on when, um, when Jack Nicholson is sort of yelling at his assistant for like, why did you bother taking pictures of Mulray arguing with some guy in front of the pagan whistle? Yeah. Uh, and like the guy says, all I heard them say was the word apple core. And he's like, apple core. And of course, that we later realize that he's referring to Albacore, like the yeah. Albacore Club that is so central to where a lot of the corruption happens. But I respect that this is a movie that never has the scene of like, Applecore? Albacore. Well, I mean, I would argue that the detective work in this movie is some of the most realistic detective work I've seen. I love, you know, whether it's uh, setting the stopwatch, putting it underneath the tire, breaking out the back taillights so he could follow someone better. You know, he is doing. I think real practical investigative work, which you very rarely see in in films. And I think it's kind of going back to all the president's men. It's very uh, naturalistic in, in what, how he's figuring out things. Yeah. I mean, people say that he's a bad detective. Mm-hmm. I actually don't think he's a bad detective. I think like his step by steps are pretty good. Stealing a bunch of extra business yeah. cards, knowing everybody in town. He's kind of TMZ where he like just knows everybody. So right. he knows how to get all the gossip. Like I think he's actually very good with one crucial flaw, which is he believes a truth that isn't true very early on. And he's just right. following this one path. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, just to even bring it out a little bit broader. I'd say this whole film is about perception, you know, perception versus reality. If you look at some of the cinematography, you're watching a lot of people being seen through binoculars or through a camera lens or, you know, even their face through uh, the reflection of their face on a picture on the wall. And it's kind of going past the surface level looking. It's it really the whole movie is about becoming a detective and not just what you see. You have to go deeper than the surface. And I feel like this is this is. Again, we keep on coming up with this theme, like what's beneath the surface? Yeah, I mean, like not only is there just this repeated idea of eyes, mm. you know, of like glasses getting broken, of like the flaw in Faye Dunaway's eye where there's a spot in her pupil. You know, there's also just this camera work that I think really drills it home. I mean, there's a couple shots that border on POV. I think like my favorite POV shot mm-hmm. is when he's in bed with Faye Dunaway there's that phone call and suddenly like you're kind of in bed with him and you see his arm. I think he's smoking a cigarette. You see that kind of pull in. And it's just that slight little touch, you know, of like be in his head, see what he sees. So Paul, there is a lot of history or fictional history or things that look like history in this movie. 
I think it's time for us to talk to an expert, the woman that I think of when I think of L.A. history stories. We got to talk to Hadley Mears. Now, Hadley Mears, she writes for Curbed. She writes for L.A. Magazine. She has her own new podcast about murder. It's called Underbelly L.A. Oh, I love it. And she hosts tours, which is how I met Hadley forever ago, giving a slideshow tour about a murder. Which is her specialty. So, Hadley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, y'all. Let's just jump in with the biggest, biggest, biggest question. L.A. Water Wars in the 1930s. Was that a thing? No. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> L.A. Water Wars in the 1920s was a thing. Okay. Not in the 1930s. Can I just bring you through the history? Yeah, yes. please. Okay, because uh, I think that's the easiest way to do it since it's so much of it is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, when L.A. was uh, first a little tiny Pueblo centered around like Olvera Street down there, the only water source was the Los Angeles River. And the Los Angeles River was never very huge. Then there was a private water company, which is mentioned a lot in Chinatown, yeah. uh, that did exist. It wasn't run by an evil Noah Cross figure, but um, our hero, who would be Mulray in the movie, um, it was really a man named William Mulholland. And William Mulholland was a fascinating, very L.A. guy, very self-made. You know, L.A. is a place where you constantly reinvent yourself and nobody's who they appear. He was an Irish immigrant. He arrived in Los Angeles. He started out as a ditch digger and taught himself to be this fascinating, amazing engineer who transformed Los Angeles. So this was a guy who never went to school, read a ton of books about engineering in his shack by the L.A. River, and built the Los Angeles Aqueduct and all of these giant reservoirs. Wow. So we're based, we're flim-flam men, right? In yeah. Hollywood and Los Angeles, they're very intertwined, and it's all just a city of flim-flam men who just kind of pick yeah. themselves up by their bootstraps. So he works for the private water company. And then around 1902, the city buys this private water company. And it is also around this time from about 1895 to 1904 that there's a horrible, horrible drought in Los Angeles. A lot like we were going through a couple of years ago, there's like no rain. So this drought is happening. There's water supplies dwindling everywhere. And this man named Fred Eaton comes to Mulholland. And Fred Eaton had been a mayor of Los Angeles, and he was one of the few L.A. natives. Like, he had been there since it was this tiny little Pueblo. And so Fred Eaton comes to Mulholland and says, listen, there's this amazing giant lake called Owens Lake, which is in the Owens Valley, about 200 miles northeast of Los Angeles. And ever since I was a little kid, I always thought it would be the perfect place for us to get our water in Los Angeles. So... They go up and have a ton of whiskey bottles in their car and they go to this Owens Valley Lake and it's really hard to get there. And it's a very remote area, mainly of just farmers, kind of like you see in Chinatown, like right. rough and tumble ranchers and stuff. And uh, Mulholland sees this amazing lake and that there's this really easy kind of downhill pipeline that you can get it to the San Fernando Valley. And so he says, fantastic. Yes, we should we should build this fabulous aqueduct down to Los Angeles and it'll solve all of our water woes. The thing is, and this is where there's some shady stuff, is that one, right at the same time that um, the board of commissioners and other people in LA are secretly discussing how can we get the rights to all this, this lake in Owens Valley and this river, 
there maybe was some kind of like talking back and forth with all the rich guys in town. And um, a guy named Moses Sherman, who actually founded West Hollywood, weirdly enough, he was on the city board for the water stuff and also good friends with Harrison Gray Otis and Harry Chandler and this consortium of guys who owned a lot of newspapers and stuff. So like the Albuquerque Club kind of aesthetic is totally that is very true. They weren't a club per se, but they were all the big wigs in Los Angeles. And so he kind of tells them, hey, all that ranch land right outside of Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley, just so you know, like there might be tons and tons of water coming there very soon. Mm. So they option a ton of this land that they already had eyes on and kind of designs on buying in the San Fernando Valley and purchase it a day after it's announced that this aqueduct's going to be built. So that is shady. And that is a true thing that happened. That's very much like Chinatown. But then what also happens is that this Fred Eaton guy, who was the mayor of Los Angeles for a while, he goes up to the Owens Valley and starts buying all the land around the lake and the river to get the water rights. He makes the ranchers up in the Owens Valley think that he's buying this land as part of the U.S. government's reclamation project to bring them water. So, wow. again, another really super shady. Yeah. The, the city is built on lies and stuff. Wow. Like. So he did, he did buy a ton of land in the Owens Valley to get the water rights, which he then... Um, gave to the city of Los Angeles and all he got out of it for decades was just a bunch of cattle from this like useless ranch land he had bought. So they build the aqueduct. It takes till 1913. It's a huge, huge deal. Um, Thousands of men are building this aqueduct. Its mouth is in the San Fernando Valley. And Mulholland, William Mulholland is the hero of Los Angeles. He's in charge of this entire aqueduct that's going to bring the city from being a city of a couple hundred thousand people to millions of people. And that is true. Like Noah Cross says in Chinatown about Mulray, you know, he made this city. Mulholland did make L.A. L.A. could not exist without the water he brought from the Owens Valley. So in 1913, the aqueduct officially opens and Mulholland says this famous line of, there it is, take it, which a lot wow. of people have used as kind of, you know, like white male patriarchal yeah. you know, privilege of take all this water from these poor ranchers. And uh, it's a giant success and the population is just booming in Los Angeles. So it's booming so much that by the 1920s, Mulholland is very worried uh, because there is not enough water already. The Owens Lake isn't supplying enough water. The aqueduct isn't doing the job. So he wants to get more water. And that's when the water wars start. Because the Owens Valley was really decimated and basically completely bought out by the county of Los Angeles. And they wanted water for themselves. It's very complicated. We don't need to get into all that. But they do dynamite large portions of the aqueduct. They do almost lynch a guy who Whoa. they felt like was um, selling rights to stuff. And so they, like water rebellions, like when the farmers beat up Jack Nicholson and they're angry. Exactly. That tension was actually happening. And the only way the guy got out of being lynched, like they kidnapped him from a restaurant, took him under a tree, had the rope, 
And he made, he was in like the Masons or some secret society. So he like made a sign that's like what a Mason in distress makes. And so the people who were about to lynch him were like, oh, right. He's like my Mason brother. And so that's (laughs) the only way he was saved. Wow. So it's much more complicated. Yeah. But it's all sort of true. I don't think the intentions were as bad all across the board as, right. of course, Chinatown and Robert Town wants you to believe. Okay. Yeah. And there's also sort of this ghost that hangs over the film a little bit. You know, we hear Mulray talk about this dam accident, that he does, he's not going to let this dam accident happen again. He's not going to have a new dam because so many people died. I mean, he's talking about something called the Vanderlip Dam, but that's true, right? That is true. Um, in the late 1920s, there uh, was a huge disaster. It was actually the largest um, man-made disaster to ever happen in California. It was called the St. Francis Dam disaster. And that's when uh, the St. Francis Dam, which was designed by William Mulholland, uh, burst outside of Valencia. And it caused a giant flood that went all the way to Ventura, all the way to the ocean. It killed probably between like 400 or 600 people. And um, Mulholland, a lot of people say Mulholland never was the same after that. He was already an old man. He was kind of encouraged to retire from um, the water department at that point. He was no longer chief engineer. From what I've heard about that dam accident, like I heard that they knocked bodies so far away that they found bodies in Mexico. They found bodies everywhere and they still find bodies occasionally because what happened was a lot of the people who got killed were um, itinerant workers working on different rail lines. So nobody really even knew, you know, back then, in the 20s still even, John might go off to the West to work, and you just never hear from him again. And so people didn't even know he had disappeared. Yeah, I mean, like, Mulholland, I guess he's like a quotable dude, because, like, the thing he said about the St. Francis Dam that I thought was really striking is he said, the only ones I envy about this thing are the ones who are dead. Yes, and he was very well-known Mulholland, and Mulray is not like this at all in the movie. Mulray seems kind of like a boring do-gooder, you know? Mulholland was known as like a jokester and like real wry and funny, and all the guys who worked for him at the water department loved him, and he actually got his, his first like big break when the water company was still private because the guy who owned the water company asked him a question, and he was basically like, fuck off, like, I do what I do. And the guy was like, you're fantastic. You know, those things that never happen in real life. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, of course, you get yeah, yeah. fired. But this guy was like, oh, that kid has spunk. Like, make him engineer of the city. I love that. Um, yeah. I mean, this whole town is based on this idea of, you know, flim-flam men or gangsters or or people that are going outside of the law. I mean, the film business was in New York, but to work in the film business, you had to be under the, uh, you know, the the banner of uh, Thomas Edison. Like, he owned the equipment, he owned the production means, and if you did it without his approval, he would send gangsters after you, he would sue you, and a bunch of people, they called themselves the independents, actually went across country to California to make and shoot film because they knew it would be so hard to basically be caught. They couldn't send people across the country. Mafia wasn't going to travel across the country like to, you know, to give you a kneecap job or something like that. Well, he uh, was kind of chasing them out of New York and they thought that they could get away from him if they came to Los Angeles. And LA really was like the end of the world. I mean, it was the last Wild West frontier. And I think Chinatown does a really good job of showing that. These are all guys with a Wild West mindset. They're going to do what they have to do They're going to create the city they want to create, and they're going to kill 
anybody right. who gets in their way. And I think that that is kind of to me the, you know, power and greed. And also you will do anything to create what you think is for the better good. And Mulholland talks about that a lot when the aqueduct's being built, because you see a lot of papers like uh, William Randolph Hearst examiner for a while are super against the aqueduct. And a lot of um, socialist politicians, like a politician named Joe Harriman, who uh, ran for uh, mayor, they made the aqueduct this huge selling point of look at all these corrupt dudes who bought up the San Fernando Valley for this water. Like this water isn't really for you. This water is to further their aims for what they want for the city, not to save your butt. And uh, yeah, I think Chinatown does a really good job of showing that, you know, there's a fine line between to build an empire, you've got to fuck some shit up. I mean, you really yeah. do. you got to mess some stuff up if you want to create. I mean, look at America. Yeah. I mean, our history's gnarly. This plot is so, you know, Chinatown is always pointed to as such a complicated script and it's such a complicated yeah. story. But the real story is so much more complicated. Right. And so like, and Chinatown to me is such a quintessential 70s, like shades of gray, like. Is it or isn't it? Like, who knows, good or bad? And I'm like, but the real story is only shades of gray. Well, Hadley, thank you so much for coming on to Unspooled, for sharing with us all of your history. People, you go to HadleyMears.com, you can see a link to everything that she does, which is everything all the time. You can go to walking tours of downtown LA. Well, Hadley, thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. Today's episode is also brought to you by our good friends at Stitch Fix. Okay, this is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories that fit your body, your budget, and your lifestyle. Here's the deal. It's like Tinder for clothes. You go on there and you start to click what you like, what you don't like, and you start to develop a a really strong sense of your style. And then what uh, Stitch Fix does is they put it together in a box and you get it and you're like, oh my God, I love these sneakers. It's like I picked them out. And in a way, you kind of did because you're putting your consciousness into some sort of clothing AI and it's amazing. You get this amazing box full of cool clothing that you like and then Here's the kicker. Not only are you in the computer world, then you actually have a real human person, a personal stylist, who will then talk to you. Basically, they've looked at your profile, you could talk to them, and you create this new look for yourself. So part of it is just giving a stylist more to work with, because it's hard for you to articulate your style, I think. And the stylist is able to kind of merge with the computer. We're getting into the future, people. Uh, You can get this box, you try them on, you pay for what you love, you return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix whenever you want. You want it once a week, you can get it once a week. You want it once a month, you can get it once a month. You want it every Easter, you can get it every Easter. Stitch Fix styling fee is only $20, and it's applied towards anything that you keep from your shipment. So that's nothing. It's only 20 bucks to pay a real live person to look at what you've deemed is worthy for yourself. I love it. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash unspooled and get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash unspooled to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash unspooled. So this movie cost about $6 million when it was made. It grossed 12 when it was first released in 1974. And as of 2014, it's grossed uh, about $30 million. 
Um, so not like a giant, giant hit. Um, but, uh, you know, it seems to be kind of universally loved and respected. Were there any bad reviews? There were. It actually, I have to give a shout out to somebody. Um, I go to this library for a lot of my research. Mm-hmm. The Margaret Herrick here in Los Angeles. It's like the Academy, their library. Right. They're great because when you look up an old movie, they actually have a lot of original clippings of the reviews from that movie. Oh, wow. So I was in there uh, looking for old reviews of Chinatown. And I um, ran into a critic friend of mine, Michael Schrago, mm. and it turned out that he wrote a negative review of Chinatown. And so wow. I found it while I was there. So recently? In, 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 or No, no, no. He's a very – he is um, – he's sort of Leonard Maltonish. He became okay. a critic when he was really, really young. Like oh, he has wow. stories of playing pool with the greats in like the 60s. And in 1974, he was 22 years old. And he wrote a pan of uh, Chinatown. And as I was pulling it up and I was like, Michael, I'm going to use this on the show. I love it. This is what he said to me. He said, ah, yes, I wrote it when I was a bold and confident 22-year-old. There's a reason I haven't reread it in a while, but I still stand by it, sort of. So, Michael Schrago, thank you. And I'm going to read you a review that you wrote in New York Magazine of Chinatown in 1974. He wrote that the most acclaimed private eye saga since the big sleep has the torpor of awake. And the corpse is the screenplay. Wow. Yeah. He said that the film's embalming craftsmanship stymies your enjoyment. And then he goes in very, very hard on Roman Polanski. Um, he says that Roman Polanski is an aging pr- prodigy whose ravaged personal life attracts more notoriety than his usually perverse films. And that Polanski never favors compassion over carnage. He has none of Town's emotional stakes in the movie. Which I do believe, like, Town deeply cares about this film. Right. Whereas uh, he actually has a quote from Polanski. Why did I make this movie? For the money, of course. Um, Polanski, who says politics bore me and who refers to himself in interviews as a, quote, happy whore, closes Chinatown with wanton violence. Chinatown has the look of predetermined rot because Polanski smothers Town's script. He never lets in any air. We miss the beauty and spaciousness of the land, which was Town's major inspiration. Polanski revels in artifice. Every shot in Chinatown locks into a larger puzzle, and each character's smirk hides a secret. He commercializes the attitudes of apocalyptic 60s youth movies. If he really believed what his film says, he would commit suicide, or at least refuse to work for Gulf and Western, i.e. Paramount. But Polanski is just another huckster doing a job. Well, it's interesting because I think that the reason he doesn't like it is one of the reasons why this movie is kind of so revered, because... He looked at L.A. in a very interesting way. Instead of maybe photographing it like a noir, you know, he brought a darkness to the characters. We talked about this earlier, like instead of the cinematography. And I think it serves the movie quite well, actually. You know, um, I don't think that Jack Nicholson is an antihero, but I think the worldview is much darker. And, and it feels very, very topical to what we're getting in today's entertainment. Yeah, I mean, it almost doesn't need to be said, uh, but it was said a lot at the time, and it's still said today, that, like, a lot of the darkness of the Los Angeles in Chinatown is because of what Polanski had been through in L.A. just five years before with his wife, with the Manson murders. Right. That that's what the city is. And I think that that is a good bleakness in the film. I think it is good. But I, when I read the review, I was thinking— what would it be like if there was just a touch of actual genuine love for the city as well? Like, well, what yeah. would it be like if you believed, as I think Noah Cross believes, in the promise of this city? Which I think you see. I mean, even even like But is the that a betrayal of the form? I don't know. I mean, I don't think it would 
take away from it to have a little bit of love in there. I think it might complicate it mm. in a way that would be interesting. I mean, a city that is ripe for potential, but also ripe for corruption is fascinating. I right. mean, I mean, Town has said it was really deliberate that he wanted, say, like, Lieutenant Escobar, you know, to be Hispanic, that he wanted that to be part of the film. He wanted to show what Los Angeles was and could be in a way that people hadn't expected, you know? Right. And maybe there's a sense that Polanski never saw the real L.A., but he saw a version of it and he layered that on and it maybe flattened just a bit of the depth. It's an interesting point. If it was a little bit more balanced, then I think you would have some yin and yang. And I think what he does in this film is he adds comedy to kind of release the tension instead of kind of showing the beauty of L.A. I think the the most beautiful scenes in the film are the scenes that are not in L.A. They're out in the Orange Grove country there where so much light is kind of coming in. But this movie and going back to cinematography, you know, reminds me of a book that you would pull off a bookcase like this yellow paged book. It does, you know, it's it's not sepia. It's not black and white, but it has this like kind of noir, like the way that you would find an old noir, like something that's been in Where pockets. Smell and vanilla on it. Yeah, there's something yeah. about it. And I, and I feel like that's what he captured instead. No deference to the city or the genre, but more of a outsider's eye of this place. And, and maybe that's what makes it unique, too. I mean, I do think there's nothing more ultimately heartbreaking than hope. You know, when you have hope and it still turns out badly. Well, speaking of hope, I hope there's a Simpsons clip. Well, yes, there is. Although the clip that I pulled is technically a bit more of a Robert Evans clip. Okay. Because because why not? There's a bunch of Simpsons who are like, forget about it, Hallmark, it's blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay, fine. Um, But this clip is from an episode called Kill the Alligator and Run. And is the episode in which Homer Simpson accidentally kills the mascot of Florida an alligator named Captain Jack. And then he has nightmares that he is the most hated man on the planet. I mean, like Kid Rock shows up to the alligator's funeral. So he's (laughs) up late at night because he has insomnia. He's watching TV, and it is Robert Evans being interviewed by Charlie Rose. We're back with legendary producer Robert Evans. Now, before you did The Godfather, there was Love Story. Tell us about that. Ah, Love Story. The little picture that could. Was Paramount chopping at the bit to make it? (laughs) You better believe they weren't. But once that tear jerky hit John Q. Popcorn, it was Bafa Boohoo box office all the way. <laughs> and the critics loved it, too. I remember Vincent Canby said, I'm going to kill you, Homer. You are so dead. <laughs> now, Chinatown was a classic. We did problems <laughs> with the sequel, The Two Jakes. Oh, boy. Disappointed. I had the blues like Chasen's at Chili. I said to myself, Evans, you forgot Hollywood rule number one. Kill Homer Simpson. (laughs) (laughs) That is the real Robert Evans, by the way. I love it. And I believe the real Charlie Rose as well. Yes. Another uh, interestingly problematic (laughs) person. Um, Amy, well, that's a good segue into what I want to talk about. Sequels. I told you earlier that, you know, this was envisioned as a trilogy. Uh, It was going to be Chinatown, The Two Jakes, and a third that was never made called Cloverleaf. Um, Now, the 1990s Two Jakes, not badly received. Uh, you know, what wasn't a, was it? I mean, it's it's. It, this is what Jack Nicholson spent his Batman mojo on. Okay, so basically, Jack Nicholson directs us. Interesting, All right? Jack Nicholson gets behind uh, the camera for this one, but it's not. We're not talking, uh, you know, last picture show sequel quality here. A little bit better. Ah! 
All right, let's take a look I at mean, the. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, yeah. Let's take a look at the trailer. The war was good for LA. Brought in money, opportunity, and more than a little greed. Put the weasel in jail. Nothing else matters. Nothing else in the world. How about five or six million bucks? Could I make a phone call? Please. Now the war's over, and people come here because they think the money's easy and the women are easier. That's a combination that's good for business. The divorce business. I was honestly unfaithful. Which, by the way, pays for my convertible, my country club dues, and my office building, where I can shut the doors and not even hear the oil well pumping across the street. The cops always think I'm lying. How do you know he didn't have the gun with him? Oh, I'd never frisk him before I let him walk in on his wife hanging on the headboard while some guy was slamming her into the wall, Lou. The lady in question reminds you of someone else, and marriage has made more liars out of men than golf. Of course, that guy can't live without golf. What are you talking about? You tell me what the hell you think's going on here, and I'll tell you if I think you're right. What I do for a living may not be very reputable, but I am. In this town, I'm the leper with the most fingers. The two Jakes. Well, Amy, I take back everything positive I said about that movie because it looks like it disregards all the rules that this movie followed. There's voiceover narration here. It doesn't look period at all. It looks really half-assed and... And kind of it falls into all the traps that I, f- I don't know. It feels like just Jack Nicholson being Jack Nicholson. There's nothing about it there. It's pretty ridiculous. I mean, Jack Nicholson apparently gained 30 pounds for it, which I think he never lost. Yeah. Um, he, I, I'm interested in the idea of the city changing a bit of him being richer and lazier and more jaded. Same you know? idea that's last picture show, by the way, that you <laughs> yeah. know, oil comes, right? Exactly. Exactly. One thing that happens in here is that uh, the femme fatale turns out to be Faye Dunaway's daughter. Uh-huh. And Faye Dunaway's daughter tries to make out with him. And he's like, oh, no, when he puts it all together. Right. And you're like, did we need this callback? Not really. Uh, but that's played by Meg Tilly, who looks beautiful and sure. strange with her blonde hair. Um, and I guess final fun fact, uh, making this movie is when he got the actress who played his uh, secretary pregnant, thus permanently finally ending his relationship with Angelica Houston after 17 years, after she had to be the one to find Roman Polanski with the girl in the house after wow. everything. Wow. Well, what a what a way to kind of end it. And uh, do you think there will be a cloverleaf? <laughs> I, I've also heard that film referred to as like Geddes versus Geddes. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, now I'm just picturing like if Geddes versus Geddes was like about Anne Geddes, like the photographer yeah, yeah, yeah. takes the pictures of the, the babies. babies and the watermelon. Yeah. And it was like babies and watermelon versus like babies and peaches. Or I was just thinking babies and watermelon and then Jack Nicholson and a watermelon. <laughs> uh, all right, Amy, uh, my question to you, does it belong on the list? Do you think Amy Nicholson, does it belong on your AFI top 100 list? And obviously we talked about the issues coming into this film too. I mean- I think it's a really good, good film, and I don't know how hard I would fight for it if they wanted to take it off, to be honest. I don't think it diminishes the goodness of it mm-hmm. if it was off the list. Um, I think Bonnie and Clyde is such a great Faye Dunaway performance. I could let this one go if I had to, to be honest. And I think we have other great Jack Nicholson performances on the list that I could also let go of. I think we have great noirs on the list that we have double indemnity. I think this film is terrific. I don't want to erase this film from right. history. 
But would I be at peace if it was like taken off? Yes. Wow. You know what? You just swayed me. Really? You did. Because I loved watching this movie, but every point you just made, I can completely concur with. I mean, um, the only person who kind of loses in this entire thing is Robert Town. Uh, you know, it, because the script is really a fantastic script, and I think it it captures this mystery and this complex relationships, and it's so beautifully done. I, I really do think the script here is is the king. It moves at such a brisk pace and there's so much information. We talked about movies like All the President's Men where you're getting overwhelmed by information. And here it's a, you can track. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of names, but you're tracking everything. Uh, I feel like it's, it's a great Jack Nicholson performance and a great Faye Dunaway performance. But all things being equal, if there is an issue behind one of these films... Why are we going to put that one on the list? Because we have to acknowledge that, too. I don't want to erase it from existence. I'm not talking about it like that. But I can see your point about it not being on the list. I would definitely put it on my list of top noirs uh, unequivocally. But, I mean, how many do we need? And I guess that comes down to the whole question of the show. How many of each of these things do we need? You know, it's sort of like we're in the hoarding mentality. How many Westerns? How many noirs? You know, there are other genres. There are other people represented, you know, in this world. You know, Devil in a Blue Dress, maybe that should be on here. And just the sake of it's a different perspective of a private eye. I also feel bad for Robert Town. Could he be at peace knowing that, you know, he did uncredited but important work on, like, The Godfather, Bonnie and Clyde? He's here in spirit. Right. You know, in a ghost. I, we could make an argument. He wrote the first Mission Impossible. Like, exactly. Hey, yeah. I love that movie. I think. There you also go. Also a good film for tell. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, there we go. Um, and to wrap it up, Amy, we're moving down the list. Now, we already told you that we are not rolling the die anymore. So... What do we got on the list coming up? Well, we decided to follow up Chinatown with a Dustin Hoffman classic. Back to uh, some Dustin Hoffman for a little movie called Tootsie. Ah, here we go, Tootsie. Here we go, Tootsie. All right, so you can get Tootsie wherever you can find your films. Uh, the library <laughs> is a great place to go. I always recommend the library to check out some of these films or, of course, uh, on any streaming service. This is one that's uh, very easy to find. So, Amy, um, since the next movie is Tootsie, I know you're doing some research. Tell us what you found about the title. Like, I, Why is it called Tootsie? Yeah, well, this movie went through a bunch of titles, and they settled on Tootsie because Dustin Hoffman said it's what his mom used to call him when he was a kid. She would call him Tootsie Wootsie. She was like, Tootsie it is. So it has no bearing on the actual film. So maybe the best thing that we can ask of you is to give us a better name than Tootsie for this film. A, a name that actually relates to this film, not just like a personal uh, pet nickname that Dustin Hoffman's mom had for him. Wow, what did your mom call you? Not Paul. What? <laughs> Paul. Um, <laughs> give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And give us a better title than Tootsie. Something that actually relates to the film. All right, we'll see you next week for Tootsie. <laughs> I 
say thank you again to our sponsors at Fracture. You know, Paul, I spend a lot of time staring at your face as we do this podcast. Yes. I should just take a picture of you right now and make it a Fracture print. I would and I'll love it. I'll have this for you all the time. I'll, <laughs> when I'm misrecording with you, I'll just have you Put right it there across and I'll do the same desk. for you and we can make sure. <laughs> you know, it's a great way to even, um, you know, if you want to have like a phone conversation with a good friend, you could just put your phone behind the glass. It'd probably be an echoing kind of a thing and you would get a better sound quality from your phone and it'll look like you're talking to the person. I love it. I mean, I will say I have ordered the biggest size of fracture print once and it is very big. It worked. I'd have a life-size picture of your head. I, and what would be less creepy for a podcast host to own of her fellow podcast host? We will send you podcast heads of us on glass. Just tell <laughs> us what you want and we'll do it. Um, visit FractureMe.com slash Unspooled for a special discount on your first fracture order. That's FractureMe.com slash Unspooled for a special discount on your first fracture order. Don't forget to pick Unspooled in the one question survey after checkout. Please do it. Visit our sponsors. We love them. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah.